We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Romans 2, 1 through 11. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Emmaus, how are you? Doing all right? A little chilly? Good, good. Hey, thanks for braving the uh, chilly temperatures with us. Hey, we are, just so you know, we are rounding third on figuring out where we're going to be in the winter. If you're thinking, are we going to be here on, in December? The answer is no. We are figuring this out. So thank you for your flexibility. Thanks for just rolling with the punches with us. We're really rolling with the punches this morning because it's both chilly and we're down to one microphone. So I'm glad that I'm not preaching because as you can tell, I really like to talk with my hands and I'm a mover. And uh, so we, we're gonna have to preach from this microphone. So give our, uh, our preacher, Matthew Barrett, some grace as he has to stand here a little more stoic than he might have been. Hey, I get the distinct honor to introduce our preacher this morning, uh, which is Matthew Barrett. Uh, Dr. Barrett is known to many of you. Uh, he he kind of holds the, my future in his hands as he is my dissertation supervisor. And uh, he has blessed me and my family in so many ways. I could list a number of, of, of ways that he and his wife and their, their, their children have blessed us. But the most important is this. I simply love Jesus more because I know him. And, and that's the best thing that he could have given me. And I know that is true for many of you. There are many of you who love Jesus more because you know this man, Matthew Barrett. And so we would ask you to pray for him as he begins to open the word for us this morning. And remember, uh, Dr. Barrett is an elder candidacy for us. And so this fall, you will have the chance to vote on both uh, Matthew Barrett and Joseph Lanier in becoming uh, the fifth and sixth elders at Emmaus. And so I'm glad you get to hear him preach um, this morning. So I'm going to pray for him, and then he's going to open Romans for us. Dr. Barrett, feel free to come up. Hey, friends. God, we love you. And even when our microphones are breaking and we're outside in chilly days, you are good. And Lord, we come together as a family in love with one another and deeply in love with you. And Lord, we want to worship you this morning. God, we pray for our brother Matthew Barrett as he opens the word. Would you allow him to get out of the way and deliver us Jesus? Lord, be with our minds, steady our hearts, calm distractions, calm worries, Give us supernatural focus and a supernatural hunger for the deep things of you. God, we need you this morning. Be with us. Be with the preaching of your word and the hearing of your word, and may you delight in all of it. Lord, may we receive a gospel feast this morning, and I pray that you be with Matthew Baird as he serves the meal. God, we love you. We thank you for this brother. We thank you for his family. We thank you for Elizabeth and 
Cassandra and Georgia and Charlie and Lorelai and just the grace that they are at Emmaus, God, they are a gift that we have received and we are tremendously thankful that you have brought them to us. And Lord, we ask for wisdom as we discern if, if this man should be one of our pastors. Thank you for him. Thank you for his family. Thank you for this morning and thank you for your word. May we relish the gospel and may you be glorified and we be edified. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Good morning. Ronnie sent me a text message uh, not long ago saying this was the first Sunday that they were bringing Finley to church and no pressure. (laughs) This was the first sermon that Finley would ever hear and at that point I felt like, well, Pressure really is on this morning. So, no, but seriously, it is really uh, just a delight to be with you on this chilly fall morning. Uh, my family is here, Elizabeth and our children in the back there. Um, we have enjoyed getting to know you so much over the last several years. Um, and if you, if you don't know us or my family in the back, I would encourage you to... Uh, Say hi to them. They'd love to meet you and to get to know you more. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that many of you have just been an encouragement uh, to me personally, to my wife, Elizabeth, and certainly to our children as well, which has been uh, one of the great blessings of being here at Emmaus. With that said, please do have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Romans 2, 1 through 11. Over the last two weeks, you've learned from the Apostle Paul that all of humanity stands under the wrath of God, and justly so. In the first chapter of Romans, Paul targeted humanity, the nations, Gentiles, no doubt, who were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. But have you ever noticed how chapter 2 begins? A very subtle shift in Paul's language. Paul stops using the third person. And he actually shifts to the second person. He stops addressing them out there and begins addressing you. As Paul condemns the world, surely Jews were listening with a smile on their face. Paul may not mention them right away. He will soon enough in the second half of chapter 2. But I don't think that Paul is merely referring to Jews who believed in Jesus. It's more likely he is referring to unbelieving Jews. Those who took pride in the fact that they were recipients of the Abrahamic covenant, even the Mosaic law, but nevertheless had rejected the very one to whom the law pointed, Jesus the Christ. It's these Jewish unbelievers who perhaps wear a subtle, maybe even secret smile as Paul announces that the wrath of God is coming against the world. You can almost hear them, can't you? You can almost hear them in the background. That's right, Paul. Those Gentiles, they deserve it. 
They don't even acknowledge you with their debased minds, committing every type of unrighteousness under the sun. And then you open to Romans 2. And Paul drops a surprise of all surprises. Just as he finished condemning humanity, Paul turns around and he points his finger at these unbelievers. You, you too are condemned. In fact, you are condemned with them. Look at verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Paul is a lot like the prophet Amos. You remember our series through the prophets? He's a lot like the prophet Amos, who begins his message by listing the wicked deeds of the Gentile nations. And then right when Judah and Israel are feeling self-righteous, Amos turns around and condemns God's own people with this prophetic strategy. Here we see the Apostle Paul now exposing these unbelieving Jews. Not so much for judging per se, but for judging the world for a wickedness that they themselves have also embraced. You practice the very same things, says Paul. And you, out of all people, should know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Verse 2. And suddenly, their smug, smile disappears. Some Bible translations really capture what Paul is after here in verse 2. One reads, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. In the Old Testament, truth was rooted not in outward appearances, but the inward integrity of the heart. Contrary to what these individuals in Romans 2 assume, God does not base his judgment, he does not base his judgment on outward appearances of good works. As John Calvin says, God will take an account not only of their disguised righteousness, but also of their secret motives and feelings. As Paul then turns in Romans 2 to these presumptuous individuals, he is awakening their hypocrisy. Paul is exposing them as frauds. How does a person get to this point? How does a person get to this point? Judging the sins of others while embodying the same spirit of disobedience. To, the, to, to this point of what Calvin calls disguised righteousness. The answer is found in one word, presumption. A word that Paul himself is going to use. Did you notice as this passage was read how this presumption manifests itself? Look at verse 3. They supposed, they supposed 
they would escape God's judgment. Why? Well, either they were completely blind to their own sinfulness, totally unaware, lacking in self-perception, but never short of self-righteousness, or they are aware of their sinfulness, but for a variety of reasons believe they will not be judged the same. Certainly, right? Certainly God will show us some type of favoritism and hold us to a lesser standard, right? After all, we were born into Israel. We alone can be physically identified as members of his covenant. Moses himself handed our fathers the law. We are as different from the nations as night and day. But something else galvanized their presumption. Look at verse 4. When they gave themselves over to sin, nothing happened. Nothing. Nothing happened. God must not be angry with us. It's the Gentiles. They, over there, they have provoked his wrath. We are fine. Carry on. Carry on. One of the classic novels of all time is Mario Puzo's The Godfather. Perhaps you remember the story, Vito Corleone, otherwise known as the Don, the Godfather, runs the most powerful and respected mob in New York. It's a family business, one that involves or will involve his sons, Michael and Sonny. And to celebrate the Don's birthday, the family throws a surprise party. But Sonny shows up with a friend, a friend he's helping get back on his feet after getting in trouble with the law, Carlo Rizzi. At the party, Carlo meets the Don's daughter, daughter, Connie, and the two of them fall in love. They have a traditional Sicilian wedding and children. However, the Godfather never truly trusts Carlo, in part because he's only half Sicilian, but also because Carlo enjoys the countless benefits of the family and its business while staying a punk. Carlo doesn't seem to get who he is dealing with. This becomes obvious when he starts to abuse Connie. The Godfather can barely stand to look at him. And as any good Sicilian will tell you, family, well, family is everything, isn't it? But the Godfather resists responding. Sicilian parents pride themselves on not meddling in their children's business. But when Sonny, the, the very hot-tempered son of the family, when he finds out, when he sees Connie with that black eye, he tracks Carlo down in the street in front of everybody, roughs him up, and threatens his, his very life if he dares touch his sister again. Nevertheless, when the time is right, Carlo betrays the family. He abuses Connie again, but this time he actually intends for Sonny to find out. 
He's actually counting on the fact that he finds out that he will lose his temper and head over to defend his sister. What Sonny doesn't know is that Carlo has tipped off the family's enemies. They cut Sonny off at the toll booth, and you remember this famous scene, this tragic scene in which they gun him down. Does the Godfather and his son Michael know what has really happened? That it actually is Carlo Rizzi who's done this? In time, yes. But again, the Godfather does nothing. He loves his grandchildren and he decides he doesn't want to leave them fatherless. The Godfather even brings Carlo deeper into the family business, giving him even more responsibility than he had before. And now Carlo is basking in the sun of the Corleone family, all the while remaining the punk that he is. And then one day, the dawn dies. Michael becomes the new dawn. And Michael is the one who finally confronts Carlo. Confronts him about the the murder of his own brother. And when Carlo confesses, Michael tells him he's not going to harm him, but he's no longer going to be part of the family business going forward. What is so telling at this point in the story is how Carlo responds. He actually believes Michael. He believes him. He is so presumptuous that he actually thinks he will get away with murdering Michael's own brother, with abusing Michael's own sister. And the most powerful family mob that exists will do nothing. After all, years and years and years have gone by and nothing has happened. So he gets in the car, his car, a car that Michael's associates are driving, totally confident that he's okay, he's fine, he's on his way as if nothing had happened. And why shouldn't he? Why shouldn't he be judged by a different standard? After all, he's part of the Corleone family. Let's just say at the end of the car car ride, Carlo is, well, he's swimming with the fishies. He was no Corleone. Presumption. Presumption. It is so dangerous, isn't it? It not only leads, listen to me, it not only leads to your own self-deception, but it blinds you to the way you should perceive others towards you. Paul is confronting a presumptuous people. They have misunderstood God's silence for acceptance. 
They have confused God's patience with permission. And they should have known better. Throughout the Old Testament, God was patient with his rebellious, stiff-necked people. Why? So that they might repent. The Apostle Peter communicates the same in a very different context when his readers want to know why the Lord has not returned to put an end to wickedness. Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But don't fail, don't fail to keep reading what Peter says next. But, but the day of the Lord, it will come like a thief and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. We see the irony of Israel's presumption is not lost on Paul. Look at Romans 2, verse 5. By confusing God's kindness with validation, they have increased the severity of God's wrath. Notice Paul here, I think he's using the language of Deuteronomy, which says that their hearts are stone hard. Due to the hardness of their heart, they are impenitent. In the book of Deuteronomy, this, this same metaphor is used to convey that the people of Israel have become spiritually dead. Spiritually dead, so dead in fact, that if there's any hope of repentance, God himself must be the one to circumcise their heart. The prophet Ezekiel says something similar. God himself must be the one to put on his surgical gown and to remove that heart of stone and replace it with a new heart, a heart that is alive, a heart of flesh. But in Romans 2.5, this hard heart of these unbelievers, notice what Paul is saying, it only grew in its hardness. As they continue to practice more and more and more the very evils that they condemned in others. They became resolved in their unrepentance. They stored up for themselves divine wrath with every passing judgment that they made against everybody else. The church father, John Chrysostom, puts this so well. He says, the fact that you have not yet, the fact that you have not yet suffered does not mean that you will not suffer punishment, but that you will suffer more severely if you do not repent. Isn't Paul's language in verse 5 frightful? Look at, the, look at verse 5 again. Did you notice how he says that God's righteousness will be revealed? Will be revealed? Right now, you see, right now it appears, it seems as if all is well. But when the last day arrives, God will pull back the curtain on all the righteous judgment that you have required, manifesting the full execution of the wrath that you have brought against yourself. Again, Paul sounds a lot like Amos, who says, woe to you. 
This is a remarkable passage. Listen carefully to Amos. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. You desire it. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light like you think. Do you see the, the, the whole irony here? They are looking forward to the day of judgment. They're looking forward to it. Saying to others, you, you just wait. God is coming against your wickedness. But all along, the judgment of God is coming against them. They think on the last day, they will be standing in the lights. But when the Lord comes, His light will expose the darkness they have inhabited. The darkness that will engulf them for all eternity. How does Paul transition now that he has exposed this hypocrisy? Look at verses 6 through 11. He draws their attention to the very character of the judge himself. They expected didn't they? They expected a different standard of judgment. But Paul could not be clear that God is no disinterested, partial, prejudiced judge. Verse 6, Paul here I think is alluding to Proverbs 24 when he says, God will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Some of you may be wondering how to reconcile this emphasis on works with Paul's later emphasis on faith. And we will answer that dilemma in a second. But, but hold off for a second here. Hold off. For now, don't miss the point that Paul is trying to make. God is a righteous, righteous judge. Paul is, is describing what theologians call distributive justice. Paul is describing first what's called God's, both his distributive justice in terms of the way he distributes rewards for obedience, obedience to his holy law. This stems from God's covenant love and grace but he's also describing what theologians call retributive justice. Retributive justice. Whereby God distributes punishment. He retributes, he penalizes even for breaking his holy law, which reflects his holy character. In our society today, even in our Christian society, our Christian culture today. We don't mind talking about the way God rewards, do we? The way he distributes reward for obedience. But we have no stomach for God's retributive justice. Like these unbelievers in Romans 2, we think our sin must be the exception. As if God can somehow turn a blind eye to my sin without in some way compromising 
forfeiting his own righteousness. Have we forgotten? Have you forgotten that we stand before a holy God? A judge who is infinite in his perfection. One whose eyes are so pure, he cannot even look upon evil. His holiness means, first and foremost, that he is set apart. He is set apart from the created order. He is life in and of himself. And as the self-sufficient, self-existent, transcendent God, he is also self-excellent. Holiness is not, hear me now, holiness is not something that someone else gives to him. Nor is it a quality that he somehow acquires over time. He is holy in and of himself. His essence, by very definition, is holy. It always has been. It always will be. Our God, the God that you worship, is eternally, immutably, infinitely holy. He doesn't merely act in a holy way, nor does he merely possess holiness. He is holy. Divine justice, therefore, is not merely a consequence of God's decisions or his will. Justice stems from his intrinsic holiness, his inherent righteousness. Israel discovered this at Sinai. God is not only perfection itself, but he is the very standard for morality the very source of holiness, the very measure of truth. Rights, wrong, they are determined by him. He is truth. If he is righteous by nature, then he must punish iniquity to remain a God of equity. It's for this reason, look at verses 8 and 9. It's for this reason that Paul says that those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Why? Because God shows no partiality. Not even to the Jew. Out of all the nations, Israel had been given the law. God's special revelation manifesting both the promises for obedience and the curses for disobedience. This priority, though, it cuts both ways, doesn't it? The Jews had no right then to puff up their chests in conceit. For the very privileges that they received, these very privileges that they treated with contempt, these now strike against them with vengeance. So what does Paul mean then in verse 7? when he says to those who by patience and well-doing see glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now, to be perfectly honest with you, good commentators tend to be divided over this. Some say Paul is speaking hypothetically here. If the law was perfectly kept, then God would grant eternal life. However, no one keeps the law perfectly. The appeal of this type of interpretation, 
Well, it's sort of a, a warm-up to what Paul is going to say next in future chapters. No one will be justified by works. But others say Paul is not referring to unbelievers, but to the believer. He or she has been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, yet that same faith then produces fruit, enduring, persevering obedience to God's commands. And the Christian's reward is received in Jesus' words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. So which is it? Well, there's an appeal to both interpretations, isn't there? Plus, both interpretations are true concepts that you can find in different places throughout the Bible. But I think, most likely, the interpretation that fits this context may be the second one. Paul may be speaking to those who do believe those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and are being empowered to persevere in obedience of faith, desiring what he calls glory and honor, that is the final transformation into the likeness of Christ. They desire immortality, that is the resurrection of the incorruptible body. All that God has promised to his children, who Paul says in verse 10, do what is good. And as you can tell already, look at verse 6, the language Paul uses tips us off. Those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Patience in well-doing. Here is the language of perseverance, of endurance. So well captured, isn't it, when Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Paul will make a similar point when he writes to the Colossians. And he says, you were once alienated, hostile in mind, but he's now reconciled you in his own body in order to present you holy and blameless, above reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now, let me just clarify briefly here. This obedience of Christian endurance is not the ground on which you are declared righteous before God. Paul will say that soon enough. He will say that Christ's obedience alone is the basis on which you are justified. Works then do not reckon you righteous before a holy God, but they are necessary as the fruit of faith, apart from which no one can enter into the glory to come. John Calvin says this beautifully when he says, the Lord will give eternal life to those who by attention to good works strive to attain immortality. So, all that to say, in context, the Jew cannot then claim that he is safe because he is a Jew. If he continues in what Paul calls self-seeking, instead of doing good, he will receive wrath rather than eternal life. And this life on the last day, well, it's not merited, but it is the fruit of the new life that God gives. A new life that results in spirit-wrought repentance and enduring obedience. What does Romans 2 mean for us at Emmaus? If you've been at Emmaus long, then you know that we strive to be a church where the scriptures are preached. 
You know that we strive to be a church where the knowledge of God is given pride of place, where the gospel of Jesus Christ is made known. But do you realize that by being here at Emmaus, Your very presence here puts you in a very dangerous position. If, if you are bearing God's name in vain. So let me be very blunt this morning and ask you, are you? Are you bearing God's name in vain? Do you come to Emmaus each week and nod your head whenever you hear the gospel being referred to? Do you create a reputation here at Emmaus among others that you know that you are someone who knows all about the scriptures? Do you, listen to me, Do you come here to Emmaus and even pass judgment on those, on others here or in other churches because they are not as gospel-centered as you? But in truth, you have never been born again. You've never forsaken your sin and clung to Christ Jesus as your Savior. Friend, hear me out. Hypocrisy is a stench in God's nostrils. And although He may be patient with you now, giving you time still to repent, The day is coming when his kindness towards you, it will end. And on that day, you will be exposed for what you really are. To those of you who have repented, who have trusted in Christ's sacrifice, let me say something to you. I've been a Christian for many, many decades now. But I do not think I am alone when I say from personal experience that complacency is so deadly. When you first become a Christian, you just can't believe it's true, right? You just can't believe it. You, a sinner, have been rescued by the very God who had every right to condemn you. After this darkness of the night, the gospel, it shines brighter than a thousand suns. But the years go by, the decades roll on, and familiarity breeds contempt. Contempt. When you sin, when you sin, conviction is slow to follow. Repentance becomes so routine that you honestly don't take it seriously anymore. Of course God will be gracious to me. The gospel merely becomes insurance as disobedience becomes habitual, less and less having that bitter taste that it once had. So here is my word to you, Emmaus. And if you are thinking this isn't me, listen to me now. May this morning's text 
sober you up. Perhaps you've been running the race God has set before you, but in all honesty, you are walking, not running anymore. And you, if you had to be honest, if you could just be honest, you might just drift off the track altogether. Can I just give you, the professor in me, just give you a little bit of homework tonight? Go home, put your kids to bed, go home, and afterwards, just stop what you're doing. Read Romans 2.7, and then bend down and tighten up those laces. Do not grow impatient in well-doing, but remember the prize, says Paul, the glory, the honor, the immortality, and may the fear of God's impartiality and the assurance of God's loving kindness and forbearance help you endure, help us, Emmaus, endure to the finish line. Let's pray. Lord, Romans 1, Romans 2, these are sobering, sobering texts. And Lord, it would be so easy for us to jump to Romans 3, to Romans 5, to Romans 8, where we resonate. But Lord, we know, we know ourselves and we know the hypocrisy, the complacency, the self-deceit and the presumption that so characterizes our sin and is so dangerous. Lord, may we be a church who is aware of that danger, who will not settle or compromise for presumption, but is continually seeking the hope, the glory, the honor, and the immortality that comes from life-giving faith and obedience. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.